Thank you, Paul. Isn't it great to meet together as the body of Christ and to hear reports like what uh, Dave and the two young men he brought with him have given us? I think it's exciting. And you know, uh, as Dave was there in Acts chapter 2, the church, when it was initiated, was a multicultural church. Just read the list of all those who were there on the day of Pentecost. It is just astounding. The gospel immediately went forward to peoples from groups of people and nations that were scattered far and wide. And this evening, as I am going to also turn to the book of Acts, I'm going to have you add a zero to that too and turn to Acts chapter 20, if you would. In Acts chapter 20, we have what uh, could be called a uh, spiritual leadership conference that is being held. And as you look at the context, you see that Paul is uh, completing his third missionary journey. And he's done a bit of traveling. They've left Philippi. He has eight men accompanying him. Those men are named in verse 4 except for one. You notice there that they are from all over Greece, Macedonia, and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They were a multicultural team, just like the three that spoke to us tonight, a multicultural team. This is a biblical pattern from the start. Paul shows it. How else to get the gospel quickly to many nations simultaneously? You go, you build multicultural churches, and some of the people you minister to who come to Christ, who dedicate their lives to serve Him, some of them will return to their home countries and be some of the best evangelists and church planters we could ever expect because, first of all, they're familiar with the culture, familiar with the language, and uh, have an inroad that those of us coming in as foreigners just don't have. That's why it's so exciting to be in a place like Los Angeles with 107 different languages, last I heard, I think it's higher now, spoken in the, United, in the uh, Los Angeles United School District. Over 107 different languages. We live in a multicultural word, world. We just uh, were in a conference in London, in England, this uh, last August, and the church there, very similar to your church in Cologne, David, uh, over 50 different nationalities represented in the congregation. It, it is an amazing thing to walk in and see and to experience it and to watch what God is doing. And it, it is well worth our prayer, our efforts, our support financially, everything we can do to encourage these kinds of ministries. Here we have an example, right in Acts 20. The, the eighth person, by the way, who's not named here, is the one that's included every time you see the word we there. For example, in verse 6 of chapter 20, we sailed from Philippi. Or verse 13, but we going ahead to the ship set sail for Assos. And when he met us at Assos in verse 14, who's the we? The author of the book, Luke, the Macedonian probably the one who issued the Macedonian call or who it was about that God revealed to Paul. It is just such an exciting thing to see that. And when you look at verses 17 through 36, we have here Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus. Paul was a man on a mission. He was in a hurry. He'd spent 
years in Ephesus, and he had seen the church grow, and he'd seen and helped build the leadership there. And this time, his mission is to get to Jerusalem to observe one of the feast days. And he does not yet realize it, but God's mission for him is to go from there to Rome as a prisoner for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to finally have his heart's desire to bring the gospel and the encouragement of the word of God to those in Rome, the believers he'd heard there, and even to be a witness inside the household of Caesar. It is just an amazing thing to see how God plans things. Uh, we, if we are faithful in what, what God places in our hands to do, if we are faithful, it will be surprising what God can do. You may think, okay, I've got this little task to do in the church. Be faithful. Do it. Because you don't know how God's going to use that. You take care of the depth of your ministry, as Dr. John MacArthur often tells us. You take care of the depth of your ministry. Whatever you're doing, do it faithfully, do it well. Dig in deep, set down roots, be busy. Uh, learn all you can to be the best servant you can in whatever task you have in the church, whether it's a pastor, whether it's an elder, whether it's a deacon, whether it's an usher, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, whether it's a nursery, nursery worker, uh, whether it's someone who just takes care of, of making certain we have coffee uh, served and, and we have the sidewalks cleared of ice and all the things that take place in a church, you know there are faithful servants who dedicate themselves to doing the will of God to serve God's people in order that God might receive the glory. And each one of you is given spiritual gifts to serve in that fashion. You take care of the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth. How far that example, how far that ministry will spread and some of you might be surprised when you get to heaven to find out the effect you've had on others' lives just by being faithful in what God gives you to do. So as we're talking here about church leadership, I want you to realize I'm, I'm not just addressing this to uh, pastors and elders and deacons, those who are kind of officially seen in the Scripture as leaders in the church. I want you to understand that when we serve God, God will often put us in different roles of leadership. Fathers being leaders in the home. The older women being leaders with younger women and helping them and training them and teaching them in the church. There are so many different roles we could talk about. And one leadership role may not seem to be as great or as high as another, but that's not our concern. Our concern is being faithful. So what, what does it require? What does God require of us that we would do the things that he wants us to do and be prepared to be leaders when called upon in whatever circumstance might come our way? Whether it's to lead a Bible study, to lead a church plant, to lead a short uh, term missions trip, or whatever the leadership might involve. How do we make ourselves available to him and be prepared? Paul, when he got to Miletus, and I find it fascinating. You read the story here in the background in these first 16 verses. Paul's a very independent individual. <laughs> he said, I don't care if you guys are going to sail down there. I'm going to walk. <laughs> he was a walker. He loved to walk. 
and he had things to see, he had people to meet, and he didn't want to be on the ship. He says, I'll meet you later. So he left Assos, they left Assos, he walked down to Miletus, they went on and joined him down there later. It's fascinating to watch and see the Apostle Paul and the way he lived his life. And he gets to Miletus and he says, I want to hurry on to Jerusalem, so I don't want to spend long here. I could go up to Ephesus, several miles inland, and I could meet with the people there, but you know how that goes. I go there and then I have to go have tea in this house, and I have to go have tea in this house. And, and he says the hospitality and everything else, I've, I'm a man on a mission. I've got something to do. I want to get there. I want to be there on time. But I do believe it's very important that I meet with the leaders of the church of Ephesus. So we're told that he called for them. He sent for them, we're told, in verse 17. In that verse, they are called the elders. And that means that the older, usually, at least in the faith, if not in physical age, who are, have leadership within the church. Later, in verse 28, they are referred to as the overseers. It's the same word we get bishop from in the King James Bible. But uh, overseers, because the elders were to oversee the ministry of the church and to oversee the care of the members of the congregation. In that same verse, in verse 28, we come the closest here to calling them pastors. When you see their uh, they are made overseers to shepherd the church. That word shepherd, there is a verb. If you were to make it a noun, it'd be the word for a pastor, a shepherd. So here we have all three biblical terms used of church leadership here, uh, especially at the highest level. The teaching elder, the ruling elder, the leading elder, the elders, the lay elders included here as well and what they're involved in. And Paul says, I want to meet with you. Please come down to Miletus. Now, these men did his bidding. They came. I find that fascinating. I wonder how many of them said, but Paul, wait a minute. <laughs> I had a plan to go to the uh, local games. You know, we've got some people here preparing for the next Olympics, and I was planning to go there. Or someone saying, well, but you know, I, I was planning to sell some of the grain from my field that I'd harvested. You know all the excuses that can be made. You read about that with Christ and his ministry and how some made excuses. They all came. They came to see Paul. They did not realize that this would be the final time they would ever see him, this side of heaven. I don't know if Paul realized it. When they parted, they parted in tears. There was a relationship there. That tells us one thing right away about church leadership. It's a matter of building relationships, good relationships, deep relationships, life knitted to life type of relationship. They came. In verses 18 and 19, we see the manner of their life. How did these men live? Well, we see from the example of Paul as he talks about himself. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know. Now, the English there is absolutely accurate. It's emphatic. It's emphatic. It's not, well, you know. 
No, it's you yourselves. It's, it's like saying you and no others know it as well as you. You know it. You know it deeply. I, I think of the example you gave, David, of Wissen and Kennen. It's, this almost reeks of Kennen, even though all three German editions I looked at used Wissen here, unfortunately. See, you've got to do a Bible translation now, too. But you never know what God's going to do. It's, it's, when he says you to yourselves, no, there, there's the idea here. He's saying you know very well. You have a deep abiding relationship with me. You have watched my life. My life has been an open book to you. I have hidden nothing from you. And I've expended every bit of my passion, my sense of urgency, my love, my care, my concern in your midst. And you've watched me. You know what manner of man I am. You know how I am. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Now, that Asia is Asia Minor, which we know as Turkey today, lest you think it's off in a different continent. When we look at that and we, we think of it, what Paul is saying and what he is doing here, he has a life that is open and blameless. He reminds them of that. How well do other people here in LVC know you? How transparent and open have you been with your life? Have you uh, sought to build and knit together deep and lasting relationships? Or have you been guarded and tried to avoid having people know you deeply and well? When you're looking for leadership in any role in the church, look for those who don't lead guarded lives, who don't lead secret lives, who don't lead uh, lives that uh, are kind of standoffish. But look for those who have built relationships, for those who have deep friendships within the church with God's people. Look for those also who build relationships with those outside the church because they love people and they want people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you find that type of individual, that's the type of individual to consider for leadership no matter what the role of leadership is within the church. That's what we need to be like in our lives if we want to make ourselves available to be leaders in the church. Open, blameless, transparent. I've been now involved in ministry for 52 years. I was licensed for gospel ministry 52 years ago, and uh, one of the first ministries I had was to seek to plant a church in the mountains outside of Boulder, Colorado. And as a young man, then in Bible college, unmarried at the time, uh, I had much to learn. And I'll never forget just walking through the little town of Netherland, at that time it was little, today it may not be so little, 
It was a resort town that had 10,000 people in the summer and only about 500 in the winter. I don't know what it's like today. I did street preaching. Uh, we uh, got hold of a hall that was used for bingo and beer and cigarettes on Saturday night and go in on Sunday morning and sweep out all the ashes and empty out all the trays and the trash and get rid of all the beer cans and everything else and set up to have a Sunday school and then I would go out on the sidewalk and preach. And I would get up there some days early and walk around town, meet people. And one day I went up during the week and I walked into the local barber shop and met Nick, a Greek. And uh, I said, you know, I, I need a haircut. Can you give me a haircut? And he said, certainly, he said. I'll give you a haircut. And we began to talk. And he says, I've, I've seen you out there preaching in the street. He says, who are you? So I began to tell him. I was a Bible college student. And I told him about the church that I was part of in Denver and how they had sent me up there to try to plant a church. And he said, well, if you're a student in a Bible college, he said, uh, have you studied any Greek? And I said, yes, sir, I have. And so he pressed it a bit further, and he says, well, you tell me how well you know your Greek. He says, what does the word baptizo mean, baptize? And I said, do you mean whether it means immersion or not? He says, absolutely. He says, if, you, if they taught you good Greek, he said, you would know that can only mean immersion. And he began to give me illustrations. And as we talked, he said, would you like to see something? And I said, what? He says, well, he says, I'm Greek Orthodox. And he said, I have a little place in my back room here where I pray and where I read the Greek New Testament. And I said, I'd love to see it. So he took me back there. He had his little icons, as the Greek Orthodox do, and we talked a little bit. You know, two, week, two or three weeks later, I was up there in Netherlands, and I went by the barber shop, and it was closed. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange because I wanted to go and talk to Nick some more, share the gospel with him. And I began to ask around, does anyone know where Nick is? Why is the shop closed? They said, well, didn't you hear? He's dead. He died. He didn't show up to open up. The sheriff went in and found him in the back room there with his little shrine, and he had been deceased. I don't know what God had done in his heart with what gospel I had shared with him, but it helped to teach me something that even those who are unbelievers have something to teach us. He, as a Greek, taught me a little bit more with authority, perhaps, about the meaning of baptizo, baptizo baptize. I'd heard my professors talk about it and say that, but to hear a Greek tell me, that was something. That's part of ministry. That's part of growing. That's part of learning. And I often have thought, how open is my life? Can I take someone in and show them where I pray, where I read my Bible, as Nick did? He was very transparent, very open. Paul was a man like Nick, free to open up anything to anyone at any time, to show them what life he lived, and to show and demonstrate that he was thoroughly consistent in absolutely every area of his life. It's a real challenge to us. I can't claim, 
even after 52 years of ministry, that I could stand up to the Apostle Paul in this type of transparency. But it's necessary that we work toward that energetically in our lives. Move on down to verse 19. In verse 19, we find out a few other things about Paul and his ministry. He said, serving the Lord with all humility. All humility. What is humility? Humility is the opposite of pride and arrogance. I don't know about you, but I think enough here in this congregation have been young at some time to realize that especially in our youth, we tend sometimes to be prideful and arrogant. We might think we know it all. I, I mean, it's kind of like one of my professors told me one time. He says, yes, he says, when you graduate from high school, you stand there and you say, there's just one thing I don't understand. By the time you graduate from college, you say, well, there's three or four things I don't understand. And after you've been out of formal education for a while and living in the real world, one day someone asks you, well, what do you understand? You say, there's a whole lot I don't understand. You see, that's humility. Humility. That we've allowed ourselves to be molded, taught, led. We've allowed God to show us things through experience. And sometimes he does it in hard ways. I can remember in Bangladesh one time that as I was working in a situation with a young man who was an evangelist and church planter, and he was really being arrogant in the way he was talking and saying things. And I was trying to work with him when suddenly God just broke my heart because I began to see myself in him. And I was reminded of how I had been arrogant and filled with pride in my relationships to a president of a Bible college where I was teaching in seminary. It broke my heart. Here I saw it in front of me like a mirror. And God humbled me in that situation. You may have experienced something like that yourself. I think that's why, why when God wants leaders in the church, he says, I want elders. I want those who at least have been in the faith and matured in the faith enough to be considered elder in the faith, if not elders physically and in life experience. Because we need that molding. We need that breaking. We need that humbling. We need that removal and erasure of pride where we think we have all the answers and we know everything. We need to know we don't know. We need to know that we need God, that our strength is insufficient, our wisdom is insufficient, that if anything is going to get done for his glory, we are going to have to let him work through us to do it his way, not our way. And that's often a hard lesson to learn, and sometimes we learn in very expensive ways. But that's what's involved here, humility in all humility. It means to be a good listener. It means not insisting that my thinking be heard, but that I first patiently listen to others 
to try to better understand what they're saying and what they're thinking before I open my mouth and speak. That's why it's a good thing to have uh, someone to be chosen into a role of leadership in a church to be under observation and be in the church for a period of time, a year or more, to learn exactly what they are and who they are and to find out how they are. And then when you begin to sit in leadership, uh, that first time you attend a Sunday school teacher's meeting, that first time you attend a nursery worker's meeting, instead of seeking to dominate the floor or to try to give your view and how you think things ought to be, to sit back and say, you know what, I'm new in this group for that. I may have years of experience behind me, but I need to listen to others, and I need to listen to what these people are saying and what needs they see and wait to speak. When I was chosen to be a lay elder in our church 20 years ago, uh, the first year, basically, I sat there and said very little. And one day, the pastor said to me, he says, why aren't you saying very much? And I said, well, first of all, this is the first time I've been called a lay elder, number one. <laughs> I said, I've been in other roles, but never a lay elder. And I said, I'm new in the church. I said, you're getting to know me. I'm getting to know you. And even though we've been here that I've accepted the position and I believe that God is, it was God's will, I want to hear what the men who have been elders in this church longer than I, what they think, because they know this church better than I. I've been here a little over a year. Some of these men have been here for 15, 20 years. I need to listen. He says, but you're a seminary professor. You have been a missionary for 15 years in Bangladesh. You have all these years of mission and ministry experience. Why are you just sitting there? I said, because it's a new situation and I need to listen, these men can teach me something. Because if I'm going to be a shepherd in this flock of God, I need to listen to those who know the sheep better than I know them. And he said, well, he says, when you're ready to speak, he says, please speak up. It wasn't long before I began to speak, but I had to learn and that's the way we all need to be careful to do things. Uh, that's part of humility. And ask my wife. She'll tell you I have some pride issues. I'm not always as humble as I should be. I pray that by the time I see my Lord face to face that enough of my pride has been rooted out of me that he'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We're in the process of being made into what God wants us to be. The second thing here is he mentions tears, with tears. As I thought about this and tried to contemplate what Paul is referring to, I went back to the other occasions where we have tears referred to. He's talking here about weeping with those who weep, sorrowing with those who sorrow, being compassionate, being caring, being sympathetic. Paul was sometimes viewed as a very tough, rough man. But he was a man with a very tender heart. And he cared for people deeply. And he wept with people and he wept over people. 
that's another requisite of spiritual leadership. The third thing that is mentioned here are trials. Now, Luke doesn't go into a deep explanation of all of these trials. In fact, if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we get a slight view of the trials he faced in Ephesus. In verse 30, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? What does he mean by that? Is that figurative, talking about men like he did in Galatians and talking about the dogs of the circumcision? Was he actually put into an arena to fight wild beasts as part of Roman persecution? We really don't know what all went on in Ephesus. And if you just turn over another couple chapters to 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 and go down to verse 8, he speaks of his afflictions while in Asia Minor. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Those are the trials that he's talking about here to the Ephesian elders. He doesn't have to explain to them. They were there. They know some of them may have suffered with him in that. He doesn't need to explain it to them. And Luke doesn't bother to insert an explanation here. And we have to rely upon what Paul has given us elsewhere in First and Second Corinthians. A servant of the Lord must be steadfast in the face of trials. You will have tribulation. You will suffer. You will have trials. Jesus promised that. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. It will come. You say, well, I've never had to suffer for Christ. I don't know what it's like. Well, keep being faithful, and God may give you the opportunity. And notice what Paul said about those trials. He said it made him realize that his strength is in God and God alone. Because in trials, we find out how weak we really are. In trials, we find out how vulnerable we really are. In trials, we find out how tenuous life can be. Some of you are going through trials right now, even tonight. Either yourself personally or with loved ones. You might have rebellious children. You might be facing a personal addiction. You might uh, uh, be facing a sentence of death medically with uh, terminal cancer or another illness. 
I don't know what you might be wrestling with. I don't, do not know what trials God has given you. But you go up on the mountain and you look for the strongest trees, and they're the trees that have survived the storms. And when we survive the storms through God's strength, we become strong. But we have to be steadfast. Sometimes this comes in trials in the church. Churches are made up of people, right? We are a family. And families face problems. Families don't always agree. Families have members that sometimes just seem to go the wrong way and are taking a different path. Some families have straying members. Some families have unbelieving members. Some families have rebellious members, whether young people or adult. And what do we do? We seek to stay together and we seek to solve problems. Now, in the world we live in today, too often people are quick to say, I've got a problem in my marriage, I'll just get divorced and that'll take care of it. That's not really what God would have us do. That's not what the Scripture exhorts us to do. If we're family, we're family, and we're family for life. And you don't leave your family. You don't say, I'm no longer a member of this family. When a family goes through trials, they stick together if they want to be a healthy family that survives. It doesn't mean every problem is going to be solved. It doesn't mean that every stray is going to be regathered. It doesn't mean that every rebel is going to be turned. It doesn't mean that every painful issue is going to be resolved to where the pain goes away. There will be sorrows, and some of them will last. There will be pain, and some of those will last. But you don't cease to be family. You're still family. The same in the church. We have too many people today that when a problem arises in the church, they say, I'm out of here. They don't want to stick around. That tells you immediately they don't really feel like family. They don't view it as family. They're not steadfast. And of course, we're told by Paul and we're told by John, the apostle of love, that sometimes those type of divisions take place just so that those who are not of us will be made manifest, be revealed. But Paul is steadfast even in trials. If you want a leader, look for someone who's gone through deep waters, deep trials, but has remained steadfast. They've not been embittered by it, no matter how much pain they've endured. They've not lost faith and hope in God, no matter how they've been rejected or abused. You look for such a person and you'll find a leader who's worth having as a leader because they're not going to cut and run the first time a problem arises. Paul faced many trials. Read about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Many trials and he stayed steadfast. Look at verse 20 as we conclude with our last two points here. We've moved now from the manner of life of spiritual leadership to now the teaching and preaching of those who are in spiritual leadership. 
in verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, he said that you yourselves know, and it continues this long sentence, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. <laughs> Paul was a teacher. Paul was a preacher. Paul loved the Word of God, and Paul shared the Word of God with absolutely everyone he could. He was not afraid to declare the truths of God. He did it publicly. He did it privately. He sat and discipled people. He got into their lives and learned to love them and to share with them God's Word. He says here, I did not shrink from declaring these things. That's a fascinating word there. I did not shrink. If you just keep your finger in Acts 20 there and turn over with me to Galatians chapter 2, you see another use of the same word when it talks about Peter, who was also known as Cephas, who uh, shrunk back. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul here addresses Peter or Cephas, and he said, you know, Cephas, I have something against you because as long as there was no one here of the leadership from the church in Jerusalem, you sat with Gentiles, you witnessed to Gentiles, you took the gospel to them, you befriended them, you worked with them, you lived among them, but as soon as church leadership came up from Jerusalem, you avoided Gentiles like you were ashamed of having that relationship. Like you thought that these Jewish converts from Jerusalem would be offended by your ministry to Gentiles. And he says, you know that that ministry was of God. Notice what he says here. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw. That's that same word, shrink back. And hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter allowed fear to control him, just as when he denied his Savior three times. Fear. He shrunk back. It's timidity. Paul is saying here, I had no timidness. I had no fear. I would now, it doesn't mean that he didn't have fears. It meant that he did not allow his fears to control him or to silence him. <laughs> to my shame, I, I could list hundreds of times that I have failed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone when I had an opportunity because of fear. What will they think of me? What will they say? It's amazing when we just say, no matter what fear I have, I'm going to do it in obedience. It's amazing how often... That fear is absolutely ridiculous. It has no real ground. It's amazing how some people will actually listen. And you can share the gospel, and you can have a meaningful conversation, and, and you can go away from that saying, I, I did what God expected of me. I didn't allow my fear to control me. There are people who fear praying in public. There are people who fear teaching. There are people who fear preaching. And yet... God is a God who overcomes fears, and we're not to have the spirit of fear, but of boldness in the Lord. He says, I did not shrink 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. How available are we to meet in private, to teach individuals one-on-one, -on -one, and to speak in public, to teach the Word of God, to share the Word of God? That's part of leadership. We're told in the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and there, later in Titus 1 that elders are supposed to be those who are capable of teaching. It's something we've been talking about on our elder board, making certain that we not only choose men who are capable of teaching, but we actually give them the opportunities to do so because we're not good teachers in our first example or first time of being able to teach. We've got years to go and to grow in that ministry, and if we're not giving people the chance to do that, they're not going to grow in it. So we find leadership that is capable of that, and we give them the opportunity to grow. Verse 21, the last thing here is not only teaching, but preaching the gospel, evangelizing, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the choice of words here. Solemnly testifying is a strengthened word from just testifying. Uh, solemnly here in the New American Standard is an added word to try to express the intensity of the term. It's the idea that we're taking this witness seriously, that we view it as a matter of urgency, that it truly is a matter of life and death. That's a matter of, are we going to allow someone to never hear the gospel from us and allow them to face a Christless eternity? There's that testifying to both Jews and Greeks. And also, it's about repentance. That word for repentance is the idea of a total change of mind. That we need to have a different worldview, and that worldview comes about when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and He makes us new creatures, and we receive the mind of Christ, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we yield our lives to the Word of God, and we make a full turnabout. We make an about face in our lives. The places we used to go to, we no longer go to on a, on a regular habit. We might go there to witness to old friends that are still doing those things. But it's not part of our lives anymore to be part of that community, part of that, those practices and those habits. The books we used to read, we no longer read. The, the songs we used to sing, we no longer sing. The places that we used to go, we no longer go. The, the friends we used to have are no longer our closest friends. Our lives have changed, radically changed. And about face, we have a totally different view of things from this point on. And that view is focused on the Word and governed by the Word of God and governed by the life that we now have and live in Christ because He's the one who loved us and gave Himself for us. He died for us in order that we might live for Him. That's a huge change in what we used to be. That's conversion. That's the new creation. That's the new birth. And we preach that change. We preach repentance. We preach faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved. There is no diversity here in the gospel 
other than that's open to all people of all races, all languages, all ethnic groups, no matter who they are. It doesn't matter who you are. The gospel is for everyone. That's the diversity of the gospel. But there is no diversity in the object of faith and in the one who saves. It's Christ and Christ alone. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one. And this is what Paul declared. So as we look at these two things tonight, and we think of spiritual leadership, and we've just begun. In the next three nights, I'm going to continue on through here down to verse 36, going verse by verse to talk about it. The manner of living is so important, Paul returns to it at the end. <laughs> because how we live and who we are and how we relate to one another in the church of Jesus Christ and how we live in the world at large is very important and significant. So he's going to return to it. He's going to speak of other things that must be absent from our lives if we are to serve him and if we are to be spiritual leaders and those things which must be present in our lives if we're to fulfill those roles. 52 years of ministry, as I was thinking the other day, I hope that the Lord allows me to go home with, might say, my boots on. I'd love to go like Harry Ironside, preaching the gospel as he was in New Zealand when he collapsed in the pulpit. I, I don't know what God has in store for me. He's in charge of that. I'm not. But I do know one thing I, I desire in my life. I desire to continue to grow, to continue to be a student of the Word. 52 years of ministry does not mean that I can't make mistakes or that I can't, or, or that I'm perfect in how I lead or how I fulfill roles. And God is constantly working, sanctifying, edifying, making strong. I don't know what trials he has yet for me to go through. I don't know not what yet he has for me to make certain that I have all humility. But that's part of the Christian life. And it's part of leadership, spiritual leadership, to realize that where we are today is not where we want to be tomorrow. We don't want to become stagnant. And that, again, is where you want to look for leadership. Look for those who realize they have not yet attained. They have not yet arrived. Does that sound like Paul and Philippians? Those who realize we have much yet to learn. That's what you want for leadership. And that's what each of us must have if we are to be a leader whether in our home, whether in a Sunday school class, even ministering in a nursery, whether we are doing janitorial or maintenance work in the church or whatever we do that helps this body glorify Christ and serve Him and get the gospel out everywhere, we've got to have that type of attitude. Pray for me, will you? that I'll continue to grow. I want to be able to go home well. I said of my brother when he passed on August 11th, my younger brother, 
it, it was a shock and a surprise. But I believe that God said, okay, Jim, you've run the course. You've kept the faith. It's time to come home. Your ministry is completed. And I truly believe that of him. That doesn't mean we always agreed on everything. It means that I believe he sincerely sought to serve the Lord the best way possible. And as I listen to people who talk about him, I know that he was humble. He was a servant. He endured trials, remained steadfast 28 years in the church there in Cody, faced many issues, but sought through, was sympathetic, shed tears with those who mourned and those who wept. And that's what we all need to seek in ourselves. Not just for pastors, not just for elders, not just for deacons, not just for Sunday school teachers, but every single one of us. We ought not really to decide that our leaders ought to be something we cannot be. We know the qualifications of leaders in the church, and we need to stick to it. If we don't stick to it and to those qualifications that are biblical, it spells disaster for the church. But if the church is always putting people into leadership thinking, I don't have to be that person, I don't have to live that way, I do not have to have these qualities in my life, that is also disaster. Because we ought to all strive to have the same qualities in our lives as the leaders that God chooses in our congregation. It's bound prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your great goodness. These words of Paul being his final words to the Ephesian elders challenge us. They lay bare our own hearts and lives, make us realize our own failings, our own lack of transparency, our lack of patience, our lack of endurance, our lack of steadfastness, our lack of humility, our lack of compassion and sympathy for those who suffer, our failure to teach your word, to share your word, to speak your word, to evangelize the lost, not just to encourage believers, but to evangelize those who are yet to believe. And we ask you, Lord, to use this spiritual leadership conference that we read about here in Acts 20 to make us and mold us into the servants you desire each of us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.